welcome to Conversations About Life. Thanks, Will, for being a guest on the podcast. And I don't, we you know we just met this morning. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about you. I know we have a bunch of mutual friends on Facebook. What do you do? Uh, thanks, Will. I appreciate you having me here. Um, I am an educator, so I'm an assistant principal at an elementary school right now. Um, been in education about 15 years uh, in public schools. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's kind of what I do for profession. Um, I'm a husband to a wonderful lady. We've been married uh, be 20 years this summer, so we got married pretty young and grew up together. And then I've got two kids at home, a 15-year-old and a 6-year-old who are both just amazing, amazing people in their own way. Okay, cool. And I, um, I looked up like, you know, about you on Facebook a little bit. There wasn't like a whole lot of information, but I saw a video that you made. Um, I think it was made during the uh, quarantine and so forth. And you were <laughs> interested in um, like community, I think like Christian community oh, yeah. or something along those lines. Yeah, we've, uh, you know, Jesus saved me when I was 10 and I uh, came from a fairly tumultuous uh, childhood. Both my parents came out of poverty, like pretty extreme poverty. And so uh, they did the best they could, but there were some uh, you know adverse childhood experiences I went through and Jesus um, saved me and, and, and brought me out of those ultimately. Um, but yeah, so we've been in Christian ministry since, uh, golly, 2000. Eight or so, um, we helped plant a, a small church um, in South City named Church at Bevo. Still, still going. Still a beautiful uh, really? uh, church family. Um, and their their main goal is to, um, you know, South City in uh, the Bevo Mill area is a um, a hub in St. Louis where refugees come, um, and they you know they're displaced, so they have the shirts on their backs and the sandals on their feet, pretty much. And so they come to St. Louis, and they're looking for all the help they can get and, and kind of get reestablished roots. Um, and the Church at Bevo's one of their mission is to just minister to the people who were there and and, and be a friend, um, provide resources as they can, but also uh, talk to them about Jesus and, and get to get to know them in that kind of a spiritual sense. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a faithful body there. Um, my wife and I now we live in uh, Fenton. My uh, my dad passed. He actually was in Barnhart. I uh, grew up did my high school years in in this area, um, and uh, my dad passed in 2016. And we moved down to the Jefferson County area, and so we're down there and um, kind of doing ministry and cul-de-sac in our street and, and kind of hanging out and doing life there. So you're not a part of the Church of Abbeville any longer. We are not. No, we. Okay. You know, we got it to a place where. Um, I, I had an unhealthy relationship with ministry, if I'm being honest. Um, I, I really, I was seeking my approval from God and what I could do, uh, which led me to do a lot and, and, and do some, uh, do too much. Um, and so uh, my wife and I needed to, needed to pull back. We were both getting burnt out and um, seeing the wear on our kids and nothing, nothing at fault with the church at all. It was completely my sin and my struggle. But um, so we, we had to pull back from Church of Bevo, and we just we got to a place where we're like, we can't be members here. We just, we know too much, you know. So if there was an issue on Sunday morning with something really practical, like a soundboard, it was always in my head, man. I couldn't, I couldn't worship and just leave it alone. I'd have to go fix it, and, and it just, again, that's me. Um, so yeah, we had to pull back from Church of Bevo. And plus, you know, there's something to be said about uh, worshiping with the church body where you are. You know, I don't want to have to drive 15, 20 miles to, to worship with my body. I know a lot of people do that, and that's 
good for them, but for me, I really want to worship um, in my community um, where I'm at and, and kind of have a pulse on, you know, what's happening in that neighborhood and, and worship with people there. Um, so we, we really tried to find a church nearby us to, to plug into and, and worship with. And what, what kind of church is that? <laughs> it's a great question, man. Um, I think the the church that I want to be a part of and help build would be a church that you know, loves God above all and, and seeks to know Him and treasures His Word and takes His Word very, very seriously, and then in turn takes ourselves maybe not as seriously and just understands that we're all fallen and we all make mistakes. Um, so definitely not like a, like a high church culture. Like, that's not how I'm, I'm wired. I, I'm way too informal for that in most senses. Um, but uh, at the same time, treating Scripture with great care um, and being being mindful that, you know, we're reading an ancient language and we have to use proper hermeneutics and study it correctly to bring it to today, and also being really careful about how we apply it to our lives and not stepping too far too soon, um, because we want to avoid taking our ideas and, and putting it on the scripture, you know, we want to be really careful about that. So a church that, you know, prizes the word that way, but also a church that prizes people and welcomes people from all walks of life and all backgrounds and, and all levels of brokenness and sin to their to their congregation um, so we can have conversations with them and administer to them. And um, I think for me, one thing that I learned at church at Bevo is sometimes churches become inward looking, like we're going to take care of our own. And there, there's a piece of that that's good. I mean, Jesus said, you'll know us by how we love one another, right? So we need to make sure that we're taking care of each other in a church, but we also need to make sure we're looking to our neighbor and really building those relationships and nurturing relationships with people who are different than us, people who aren't Christians, people who are um, maybe anti-Christian, people who are coming from backgrounds that are very different than our own, um, and continuing to build those bridges because we're called to make disciples of all nations, not just people who look and sound like us. So I think those are kind of the two big pieces that I would look for in a church. Um, And I think politically, you know, I, I really truly believe the church exists to keep society honest. Um, and so I see in a lot of evangelical churches, there is, a, and has been for years, um, kind of a pass that we give to conservative politicians and stuff we don't say that I think maybe we should say. Um, and being able to say left and right, you know, there's there's sin in all politics. And, and politics, this is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is outside of this. And so I think the church really needs to be brave enough to say, hey, there's both both parties here are really, really messed up, and the church is going to be some something else. Um, and I think especially in today's era of like super divisive politics, being able to talk to people and say, hey, we really disagree. We, we have to come to some kind of conclusion, so we have to treat each other well. Um, but yeah, I, I think those are, those are some of the distinctives that I would hold for, for the church that we're looking for. And are you, uh, so you're a part of a church in Fitton now, right? <laughs> we actually are part of a church in South County. Uh, in South County, Journey, okay. Journey, Journey Bayless right now. Uh, okay, I see. So that's where, it's, that's where we're at. We were part of a church in Fenton, um, and we had, had, to, had to walk away for some reasons, and uh, now we're with uh, Journey South County. Okay. But ideally, you'd like to be close to home. I would, yeah. And I've, you know, I've told the elders of the, the journey at South County, like, hey, if there's a church that comes up that kind of meets these parameters, we're probably going to go there. Um, nothing against you guys. It's just, again, I want to be where we live. So, yeah, right now it's it's ironic. You know, we uh, joined the journey of South County, and they were meeting um, maybe 15 miles from our house. It was right up 21, you know, really super close. 
And then uh, we were there for about a year, and uh, the elders came to the body, and they're like, hey, we've got this really cool opportunity to merge with the Journey Bayless, or to merge with uh, Bayless Baptist Church. Hmm. And when they said that, I was like, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing, but Bayless Baptist Church is three miles away from Church at Bevo. So I'm like, there's there's an irony here about what the Lord's doing. So still not sure what the uh, <laughs> what his answer is there, what he's doing, but yeah, there's there's an irony there for sure. <laughs> So, um, so why are you a Christian? Man, well, that's a great question. I am a Christian because God found me um, and has never let me go since. Um, you know, like I said, when I was a kid growing up, uh, my dad was wrestling with his own demons. Um, and so he, he started drinking when he was about 13 years old. Um, and he was an alcoholic uh, and uh, kind of went through a cycle uh, throughout my childhood and adolescence where he would sober up for about a year, and then we would go about five years of him being a functional alcoholic. And, you know, he'd go to work, he would do his job, he'd come home, have, you know, would start out two or three beers, hey, we're okay. A couple months would go by, I'd turn it to six to 12 beers a night, and then uh, at some point he would have a weekend bender where he would drink through two cases of beer and not sleep, and it would get get really, really hairy there. And my mom and I would move out. We'd do that for about three months, and we'd come back. And so my first experience I remember with God, I was five years old, and uh, we lived in this farmhouse um, in Glen Carbon, Illinois. So like it was uh, um, all around the house was cornfields, right? So our closest neighbor was, I don't know, maybe a mile and a half, two miles away. Like it, it wasn't the suburbs. It was the country. And uh, mom and dad were fighting, and I was like, I can't, I can't take this anymore. Like, I'm done. So I, you know, packed my little five-year-old suitcase, you know, like kids run away, grabbed my suitcase, and tears coming down my face, and, and uh, um, walk out the door. Mom and dad are fine. They didn't know I left. And so I just walked out the door, walked down our driveway, and our driveway was maybe a mile long before you got to the main road, about halfway down. Um, and driveway was, you know, if you've been in the, the country, a lot of places they have the, the roads elevated so you're not driving right next to the fields that lets the rainwater run off in the fields and everything. So it was it was elevated and had a, a steep bank down to the cornfield. So I sat about halfway on that bank and uh, I remember there was a, a tire there and I kind of rested my elbow on the tire and I just sat there and I was my five-year-old mind. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen next. Like I'm realizing at five, I really can't run away. I've got no place to go. But I can't go back to that. I had no hope. And so I just sat there and uh, distinctly remember, man, it was like somebody gave me a warm hug and God just said, it's going to be okay. And that was it. And that wasn't like uh, the the clouds didn't part. There wasn't any kind of, you know, um, any other kind of metaphysical experience. But um, I think that was that was God introducing me to himself. Um, And and after that, I went back in the house and I went to bed and, you know, it was a rocky road for about another 10 years. <laughs> and finally, when I was 15, uh, uh, dad quit drinking for good. Um, and, and he and I were able to reconcile our relationship in my adult years. Uh, and, and went before he passed in 2016, we had a really good relationship we were talking about God and, and ministry and it was a really cool thing. But so that's how, um, God introduced himself to me. And then we were in and out of church throughout that that time, and, and when I was 10, you know, I had a pretty, what I would say, a pretty standard, uh, well, maybe not, uh, conversion experience. I was at a Pentecostal revival, and uh, man, the preacher was preaching, and I just felt this pull. It was like somebody grabbed me by my shirt, you know, and was pulling me to the altar. And, um, and, and, and you know, 
one thing to know about me is I'm a pretty hard-headed person. Well, I, I don't learn from the, the gentle, quiet voice, and I never really have. Like, I'm, I'm not a subtle person. I don't have a whole lot of subtleties about me. Uh, it's all pretty straightforward, and, and uh, uh, like I said, I'm not a high-churchy kind of person. So <laughs> God knowing that about me. Uh, God was just pulling me to the altar, and this preacher was going, and you know, it was a, a Pentecostal uh, charismatic service, and so he was getting after it, man. He was preaching, and I just told God, I was like, okay, I'll go up to the altar, and, I'll, and I'll, we'll talk when he takes a breath. And God just said, nope, come now. And I said, well, I'm going to wait for him to take a breath. And this guy kept preaching, and his face started turning bread, and I just got, you know, I was 10, but I distinctly remember thinking, oh my God, this guy's going to die. I, I, I can't I can't wait. Like, I can't wait. Um and so I got up and, and went and prayed and um, just felt like this weight um, was taken off my shoulders. And so that was when I came to Christ and when I got to know him. Um, and so, you know, started walking with him, started reading his word. Um, life was still chaotic around me, man. My, my parents were still fighting. Uh, that's, when, that's about the time that we moved um, to the, the Barnhart area to Missouri. And uh, yeah, so like the situation didn't necessarily get better, but I knew... I knew God had my back, and I knew even at, at the darkest moments I could I could talk to Him, and he, he was there. Like, I knew He was there. Even when nobody else was there, He was there. So, And I was also, a, you know, an only child through this, so it was, it was hard, to, hard to process because, like, I didn't have peers I could pick on or we could rally with, you know. Uh, my wife is the youngest of five, and so she talks about how the good and bad, you know, of having siblings, but I just didn't have them. You know, I had, I had cousins who lived with me, and... But it was different, you know. We lived for with each other for years, uh, but not our whole lives. And so there was, um, yeah, there was like a loneliness there as an only kid, and, and trying to process. And um, yeah, and so and so I think I'm a Christian because ultimately because God said, "Come to me," and I, well, I made a choice. Like I, I wasn't drug kicking and screaming. I, I don't feel like like I didn't I didn't walk down some wandering path and find God. Like God found me and brought me to Himself, and He's been holding me since. You know, just kind of thinking about like your the spiritual experiences you mentioned. So, you know, I've experienced that. Like when I was eighteen, mm-hmm. I um, I'm just coming to the end of myself and just asking God to save me from what I had become, and experiencing just that weight being lifted from me and feeling as light as a feather. Mm-hmm. And I um, so I kind of think about that and. Um, Maybe um, a time or two besides that where it seemed like there was some kind of a spiritual encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, um, in a way that seems kind of uh, like long in between, you know, it's like I wish there was more of a experienced connection with God mm-hmm. just regularly um, so much of um things are just like uh, well we're it's just what we're told you know mm-hmm. and so forth um but um anyway um you mentioned um the word and i guess so that's pretty important to you mm-hmm. and um i and that's maybe in a sense, kind of a spiritual experience um, to, in that for me, the scriptures, you know, they just really resonate with me where there's something self uh, 
um, authenticating, authenticating mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. You know, something about them. Um, but um, so, what? Um, I guess, how do you experience God um, now in just a day to day life? Um, or do you? You know, just kind of thinking back to those very vivid experiences really kind of keep you locked in, or is it a day-to-day type of thing? Um, I don't know. What's that like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So, like, what's what's daily spirituality like, right. essentially? Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so, I, you know, when I was younger, uh, I've, I've mellowed out a little bit since. Uh, when I was younger, man, I, uh, I wanted to, to make an impact on the world. I wanted to... Uh, you know, I woke up when I was 30 and I thought, man, Martin Luther, uh, the reformer had written 30 books by this point in time in his life. I'm 30 books behind. I went and told my wife and she's like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not your calling, man. Calm down. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to make this huge mark on the world. And as I started reading the scripture, you know, you look in the book of Acts and the, the foundation of the church and you have these amazing, um, mountaintop experiences you know when the, when the spirit is given and they, they're speaking in tongues and they preach in jerusalem and then there's an elapsed time of quiet um and and we're not really told what peter's been doing you know apparently he's been preaching and, and evangelizing to the jews there in jerusalem and then he pops back up different times and i, and I, I really dug into the story of philip um you know he, he left jerusalem when they were getting persecuted and he runs into the uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, and they have this amazing experience, and God, the Holy Spirit, literally transports him from one place to another, and then he kind of disappears. And you hear about him later that he's had, you know, he's had a bunch of daughters, and they're chasing after God, and they're amazing, and these prophetess uh, girls. And, hmm. and It's then, the same Philip, huh? Yeah, same okay. Philip, yeah. And he, he so, I mean, he, he went to Caesarea, and he lived a life, man. He, he got a wife and settled down, and so I started thinking about, like, what what does life look like in in between these mountaintop moments? Like what is, because that seems like that's the majority of time as a Christian, like these mountaintop moments are really, we're really close to God and it's really intense. But I also think about, um, you know, if you try to light a candle with a blowtorch, right. And you hold that blowtorch on the candle, you're not going to have much of a candle left. It's going to go pretty quick. Um, but if you, you know, light the candle with a blowtorch, that's a really intense flame for a little bit, take the blowtorch away and then you still got a flame. You still got light. Um, and so I, I started thinking through like, well, what does it look like daily to walk with God and not this, uh, need for a, and, and I'm totally my experience. I'm not putting anything on you, but like I needed this amazing, um, almost mystical, like I needed to feel God, like in my bones, man, I needed, I needed that. And so I kept seeking that and seeking that. And at some point, um, probably around, when I told my wife I wanted to be like Martin Luther and she was like, you're nuts. That's not who you are. <laughs> um, I started studying like the, the quiet life of Christians, you know, and um, I think it's first or second Timothy. Paul tells, uh, it might be Thessalonians. He tells us to live a quiet life, you know, and, I, and it really I started to let that soak in and just think about what does it look like to walk with God daily? So, I mean, you know, I, I, I start my day in scripture, like right now um, I get up, get the kids ready for school and uh, right now I've got a pretty long commute to work. Um, it, it ranges between 30 minutes to about an hour, or hour and 15 or so. Um, so during that time, I'm listening to scripture. I've got this cool app that'll read to me through my car. So like I love modern technology. And so it also keeps me chill on the road. So it's really hard to road rage, you know, when you're reading about the grace and mercy of God and hearing that. Um, so yeah, I start on scripture and then 
throughout my day, man, you know, dealing with um, kids in public education uh, is, is a really sweet gig, but it's also a really hard gig um, because you're dealing with kids from all walks of life and all backgrounds and, um, you know, the mental, mental health crisis, um, it's a real thing. And so we're dealing with kiddos that are, are little bodies, but dealing with really big things. And so as I go throughout my day, I come to situations and frequently I'm praying like in my head silently, I'm like, God, I don't have the resources for this. Like I have an educational doctorate that did not prepare me for this situation at all. Um, so give me wisdom through this and then give me the words, give me the, you know, the, uh, uh, verbal, uh, guidance, but also like how I can guide these kids verbally, but also the nonverbals, because that's also important. Like check my body language, check, check the whole situation and just kind of cover it with your grace. And, uh, you know, he answers those prayers and he goes and, and those situations are, are resolved in a good way. And, um, we're able to find, you know, real solutions. And like, I'll, I'll go to call a parent and take a deep breath and say a prayer and just be like, God, I, I need some help on this phone call. Like, this is going to be hard. I got to tell this parent some things that any parent doesn't want to hear, you know, but we got to talk about it. And, uh, so yeah. So, and then when I come home, you know, it's, it's enjoying the family, uh, talking with my wife, my, my older kiddo right now loves, uh, philosophy and like to cut up, uh, ideas and like point counterpoint kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, when I get my 15 year old talking, really enjoy that, you know, and, uh, right now, uh, the kiddo doesn't identify as a Christian. And so there's a lot of, uh, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Let's talk about this. And so um, I think having those spiritual conversations with my kids and, and my neighbors and stuff like that is, is another part of it. And that's not necessarily daily, but when it comes up, it's definitely enjoyable. That's interesting that your uh, 15-year-old doesn't feel pressured to identify as a Christian <laughs> in a strongly Christian household. So that's, yeah. kind of, that's good. Yeah, well, um, so my older child, and if... Uh, my kiddo ever listens to this, they're not going to like this next statement, but they're a lot like me in that they, they're not subtle. Um, they, they don't, a uh, little headstrong, a little stubborn. Uh, you know, when I, uh, when the, the kid was three, I distinctly have memories. They refused to brush their teeth. And so I had to tell the kid like, you're going to brush your teeth or I'm going to brush your teeth. And sure enough, I ended up brushing their teeth that night mm-hmm. for a couple of nights until they figured it out. And then, they, then we haven't had problems with brushing our teeth since. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I, I really trust, you know, Corinthians talks about a, a covenant household and I believe, um, I believe that Jesus has that kid marked for himself. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really resting in that promise. I don't feel any compulsion to try to force it mainly because I know if I try to force it, um, it's going to go the opposite way, right quick and in a hurry. So, uh, I think, you know, God was really patient with his people in the old Testament and still really patient with us today. So I'm doing my best to be patient. <laughs> so um, something I've been thinking about lately is um, just the whole idea of um, fulfilling one's mission in life or something along those mm-hmm. lines. Like there seems like there, for me, um, my routine is to get up in the morning and I start journaling. And it seems like there's always like seeking something like what is... I'm asking the same questions over and over again. Mm-hmm. What's life all about? And um, am I on the? What am I searching for? What am I? Am I on the right track? And so forth. And um, like you mentioned, like seeking approval. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like maybe that's something similar that's been go- that has gone on with you. Um, 
here recently, I've, I've kind of thought that, um, you know, Christianity provides answers to that, like, um, mm-hmm. like finding that, well, what do I have to do in life to feel like, okay, I'm, I've accomplished what I'm here for. Um, and I'm not talking about like the little things, you know, I'm, God pr- probably has us, you know, to do this or that or mm-hmm. raise kids, whatever. But like just fundamentally as a human, what's it um, all about? And Christianity, um, uh, you know, like um, there's a, a, a compass in us, I think, um, for the good, for beauty. Like mm-hmm. that's something we're just, um, you know, it's just built in that we know there is good and evil. There's mm-hmm. beauty, there's non-beauty, you know, mm-hmm. and we, um, so we can gravitate toward the good. And I think, and then we want to be the good and Christianity. So there's the, just seeking that. And if you were to ever obtain it, you still got that wreck, you know, wreck of a life, mm-hmm. your record. But then in Christianity, we encounter that, which is truly good. And that, and he gives us that fulfillment, like he provides for us through his grace. Um, like this is, you know, you're what you're to be, not meaning there's no growth, but you're kind of reached the finish line as far as just like, um, okay, you're accepted. You're right. Mm-hmm. You've um, gained everything you, you have been seeking um, as far as the approval or just being good enough or right. something like that. And it doesn't necessarily make life just necessarily easy and simple anymore. Absolutely um, not. <laughs> but it kind of—it seems like it gives some kind of a foundation. Um, mm-hmm. So, what about your experience, like with seeking approval and and things along those lines, um, or um, like have you experienced that? Are you have you reached um, something where you're? Um, kind of where you can just think it's finished now or are you what are you after or just anything along Man, that's, yeah that's great um, yeah so so you know we uh, uh, used to talk about um, kind of like foundational idols or like idols that really frame kind of almost like a, your your uh, your personality like what, what what you're desiring what you're craving you know like some people crave power some people crave control uh, I definitely craved approval, you know, and uh, it, it came from me and my dad's relationship in large part because um, I always just wanted him to, you know, look at me and say, son, I'm proud of you. And that happened when I was 27, you know, so that was that was great when it happened. But um, I found myself looking for these father like figures. And one day my wife looked at me and she's like, well, if I had a penis and I said this, would you listen to me? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you know, you're meeting with this pastor mentor friend and he said exactly the same thing I said verbatim and you're changing your mind now. I said it to you six months ago and you you didn't even pay attention. I was like, oh, well, that's probably not healthy. So I should, <laughs> I should take some time and think about that. Um, so yeah, no, I definitely was seeking 
hardcore seeking approval and, and ultimately it was seeking God's approval. Um, and like I said, well, I was, I was in the ministry, like I was preaching, I was teaching, I was doing small groups. I was, um, you know, walking around prayer, walking with people. I was engaging in our neighbors doing all these things. And I remember, um, we, we had had a, a miscarriage in between our two kids. We'd had a miscarriage and it was a really, really, really dark, bleak time for us. Um, especially, especially my wife, you know, she, it hit her really, really hard. And there were some underpinnings about church that were pretty superficial. Um, and you know, as and I'm sure you've gone through, uh, trials in your life too. And when those trials come up, all the superficial stuff kind of fails and it, it gets deep real quick. Um, and so we, you know, we, we really grew in our relationship with God in that, in that time. But I remember sitting with a small group and, uh, talking with my friends and, and some of them were believers and some of them weren't. And I was like, look guys, I'm going to be honest. I could give you a 45 minute sermon about the love of God, but to sit right here and tell you that I feel it in who I am. Like I don't, like I know it in my head, but I don't feel it in my heart. And I'm, I'm going to start working on that. Like I'm going to start praying specifically about that. Um, and so I did. And, you know, they, they say that the, the chasm between the head and the heart is the, the biggest chasm there is. And I, um, took me about, about nine months or so uh, on that journey. Um, and when I finally realized that God had been sitting there all along saying, Hey, I love you for who you are. Like I didn't die. So you could go prove yourself to me. Um, I died so that you could come to me exactly as you are. Um, and I love you exactly as you are for sins and all. And I, I died to pay for those sins. And now, um, you, you're, you're here to do good works. You know, you're here to do things, but it's an experience we're going to do together. You know, and I think as far as, like you mentioned seeking, like what are we going to do today? And I think um, C.S. Lewis has this picture of heaven at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. And they just, um, essentially, it's interesting, like the kids have died and they're going to heaven, right? But it's painted as this, this children's uh, picture. So they're they're running through these fields and it just gets more and more beautiful. And they keep saying further up, further in, they're running up this mountain. The mountain never stops. It's just more and more beautiful. Like, there's a waterfall. Oh, my goodness, that's gorgeous. There's this pool glittering with jewels. Holy cow, that's amazing. There's this field, and it's the most beautiful thing ever. It's further up, further in. And so I think, you know, daily, it's it's those experiences and those memories that we make with God walking with Him. Um, because I think as human beings, we uniquely have the capability to go through a situation and kind of on a metacognitive level reflect on that situation, like while we're experiencing, after we experience it, um, prepare for situations beforehand. And you look through the Old Testament, and, and the Old Testament, in my mind, is is largely a string of encounters and relationships and um, memories that God is making with His people. And so my goal now, as I'm walking with God, is to well, what what are we going to do today? Like, what's what's the new encounter? What's the new memory that we're going to make today? What's the new experience we're going to have? And it, it could be something small. It could be something major. It could be something rather unpleasant. Um, but, you know, being able to go through it together uh, is, is meaningful, you know. And I've, I've found that with people. Like, I've I've got some friends that we went through, went through some hard times together, man. And I know if it's, you know, 3 a.m. and I need something, I can call that person and I'm going to get a hold of them and they're going to help me with whatever I need. And it's because we went through that kind of like um, almost traumatic event together. And then I've got friends that we've gone through some really, really good times together. I'm like, well, 
we get together. We haven't seen each other for 10, 15 years. We sit down and talk, and it's just like we're picking up from that moment. Um, and we're able to fall right back into that conversation, right back into that, that relationship experience. And um, so I guess, you know, daily seeking what's the what's the big picture to life. I think when we, when we come to Christ, I would say that's the beginning of being able to make those memories together and inviting God into our life and, and stepping into how he views things um, and then experiencing this life we have together. I think that's, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about, you know, it's the best thing that a man can do is enjoy his work and um, toil in his labor. You know, like we, we've got jobs to do here on earth. Um, and with that comes a list of experiences that I think those experiences frequently remind us we're not enough um, and continually drive us to the one who is enough. Um, and as we walk with him through that, I think that's that's how I find meaning in my in my daily spiritual life. So this is a regular thing, just kind of thinking, um, what kind of memory will I make with God today? Or, you know, that's that's a way of thought for you, day in and day out, so so to speak. Yeah, you know, it it, it comes kind of it comes to this base memory when I was a kid. Um, I, I went rabbit hunting with my dad one time, and you know, growing up as a kid with a dad who was an alcoholic, um, a lot of my memories. Uh, well, first, as, as human beings, we're, we're wired to remember the bad stuff, right? Like, oh, I almost died there. I'm not going to do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of the good memories that I have, it didn't, it didn't stay good. I mean, life's not perfect, right? Especially when you're in a tumultuous environment. Like, if you have a really good memory, frequently there's, yeah, but then this, you know. So, um, but I had a, a memory, uh, really, it, it was just a good one. It, it was one that didn't have any bad stuff around it. It was it was just good. And we were rabbit hunting. And uh, my dad was an avid hunter. And, and I, like I said, he was coming out of poverty. So he kind of had to become one because that's how we had protein on our table for a good long time in my life. And about, about six years from birth to about six, uh, dad would go out hunting. And I didn't know it at the time, but he was hunting because we didn't have any other way to get meat. Like we couldn't get beef or pork. Like we had to get rabbit or squirrel or... I've eaten a lot of four-legged chickens, so I'm not sure exactly what we ate, but he got something. Um, so anyway, we went rabbit hunting, and it was, man, it was cold, about four inches of snow on the ground, and we're walking through this field, and the dog is running, you know, about a three-mile circle around us, like the, a good rabbit dog would do, trying to find rabbits and chase them to us. And the, the snow was so deep when we were in this field, because it was like over, you know, it was that tall prairie grass that was laying down, and the snow was on top of it. So when you'd step down, the grass would spring up and like fling snow on you. And I, my boots weren't that tall, man. I was getting snow in, in my boots in places I shouldn't have snow. But I found if I stepped where my dad stepped, um, I would literally follow in his footsteps. So he is, you know, he's crouched low. He's doing the whole hunter thing. Like he's being stealthy and he's got his gun and he's focused on the rabbits. And I'm focused literally on where did he step last and let me hop over there so I don't get snow in my boots. And I'm a kid, so I've got this game going, and it's a lot of fun. And, you know, it's, I don't know, maybe 7.30 in the morning. We got up at like 4 in the morning to get ready. I'm having the time of my life, man. And uh, <laughs> we uh, ended up getting a rabbit. It was a good good hunt, good time. I came back to the truck, and, of course, my feet were frozen. So I remember um, about 12 o'clock, um, my, my dad peeled my boots off me, and my toes were like blue. Like, I'm getting hypothermia, man. So he puts my toes up on the dash. And uh, got the heater going. He's like, oh, my God, your mom's going to kill me. Like, <laughs> We've got to fix this. Um, but what I really remember about that memory was it wasn't the particulars of what happened. It was that I was going through it with my dad. That was key. That was key. That was really meaningful and moment- like 
momentous, you know what I'm saying? So that's kind of how I think about the walk with God. It's not a cognitive, like what memories we're making, but it is a, huh, here's something we're doing together. And when I walk into my school, I recognize we're doing this together. Like God has me here for a reason and uh, his spirit is empowering me to do this job. Um, and so moments when I'm exhausted, you know, like I'm not going to lie to you when I'm, when I'm wiping cafeteria tables and Tommy has his finger up his nose and, you know, Susie's running around trying to get ketchup and then somebody steps on an orange juice and it explodes. Like in that moment, am I thinking, wow, God, we're making memories. No, absolutely not. <laughs> thinking a lot of other stuff in that moment. Um, but as I go through the day, I, I do try to be mindful that, Hey, God has a purpose, even in these mundane things, you know, even Tommy having his finger up his nose, um, there's a connection point that I have with Tommy there. And, and as an image bearer of God, talking to an image bearer of God, um, that's impactful. And so I need to watch how I correct Tommy <laughs> and, and remember that, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm going through this, be, uh, be careful how I'm interacting with these little humans because they, they bear God's image, but know um, that it, it has meaning and it has purpose. So now to translate that to, you know, being a dad, I, I really struggle with that, man. Because when I come home, I'm, I'm burnt, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. Um, but I'm really, really trying to be intentional lately about I'm going to put down the phone. I'm going to put down, you know, the, the, the newspaper or whatever I might read that might allow me to distract and withdraw and be in this moment with my kids, you know, and joke with them and play with them. Um, and again, it's about it's about living through those moments together in relationship. Hmm. When it comes to memories, um, I've noticed that I don't hold memories very well, but sometimes I'll come across like old pictures and it's like, man, these um, pictures are all parts of life mm -hmm. that I would have totally forgot, forgotten mm -hmm. about, but the, but the pictures remind me, hey, I, I went through this with my kids or whatever, mm -hmm. and um, I, um, I just wonder about, you know experiences with God if um, there's a way to hold on to them better. <laughs> yeah, man. I think, you know, you mentioned journaling, and I think journaling is, is, has been in my life a really key piece of that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a, I'm a pretty extroverted processor. So, like, I, I talk a lot, um, and I found that if I need to process something, I can write it, and it also does the same thing for my brain, so I can kind of get it outside and look at it. Um, but I think, you know, writing about our experiences with God is powerful. Um, sharing those experiences to talking with people about them and, and talking with our kids about them and um, friends. I think, you know, my, uh, my wife's family has this really cool informal tradition of, of just telling stories about each other. So we sit around the table and it doesn't have to be like Thanksgiving or like Christmas or anything big. Like it could be Tuesday and we sit down. And I noticed it when I first started dating her, because my family doesn't do this at all, but her dad will sit down and he'll start telling stories of, oh, when your brother was born, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and when you were three years old, this happened. And granted, it's the same stories he's telling, you know, the same five or six stories for each kid. Um, but they're funny or slightly embarrassing or, you know, whatever. But as I looked at it as like a, almost like a sociological phenomenon, I was like, oh my goodness, like he's become the anchor to this family. Like these stories are really what hold them together. Mm. And so my wife has now taken, taken on that mantle that we sit around the, the table and, oh, I remember when you were born and I remember when you were three and this time that we were in church and this thing happened. And 
um, our younger daughter eats it up, man. She's like, Dad, can you tell me a story of when I was a baby? Can you tell me a story? You know, and like you said, my memory is such that I've got like two. Like that, <laughs> that's all I've got. Uh, my wife, God love her, she makes these uh, picture books. Um, and she, she tried to, you know, when she was really ambitious, she tried to make a picture book for each year of the, the kid's life. And so I think our first kid we have up until they were like four or five, maybe we've got a picture book for each year, which is, is great. Now we do like a picture book of the family for the year. But I've told my wife, I'm like, if we didn't have those picture books, I wouldn't remember what our kids looked like when they were two, three, four. Like, mm-hmm. I just wouldn't. So those, those, those pictures, like you said, are, are invaluable. So I think writing down our experiences and sharing those stories are ways that we can um, keep those at the forefront of our mind. Yeah. Story is kind of interesting because um, that, um, well, that's how the good news has come to us. You know, right. that's how the, the message of just anything that means anything comes to us through story. Otherwise, um, we're just, you know, there's nothing else really. I mean, yeah. it's like what happens now, what happens then, how it's overcome, whatever. That's what life is made out of and stories are captivating too mm-hmm. uh, like mm-hmm. I remember when it, being real little and the librarian at school um, had us all sit down and she got out a book and she was really good at just reading and um, I was on the edge of my chair yeah. you know just stories draw people in and I've heard it said if you want to tell somebody something like if you're speaking and uh, you want them to remember or you want them to be engaged with you Put it in a story form. Absolutely, yeah. And somehow. Um, but, yeah, so to be able to remember somehow seems like a good thing. Um, yeah, I, you mentioned pictures, and I did too. And, like, there's some parts of life that are kind of missing where we weren't making much, many pictures. Yeah, right. And it's kind of a... <laughs> it gets busy, man. <laughs> Kind of something, um, but yeah, I regret somewhat. Um, so um, you mentioned at the very beginning something about your cul-de-sac where you live, yeah. like reaching out to neighbors and so yeah. forth. Like, what's going on there? So we we have an awesome uh, awesome community. You know, my my niece and nephew live right next door to us, which is I, I recognize is extremely rare. And I say niece and nephew; they're like five years old. Like I said, my wife is the youngest of five, so it was pretty spread out. So her niece. Um, it's only like four years younger than us. So we function almost like adult siblings kind of. And, uh, they, they, so when we bought our house, we bought it again, I was trying to, um, you know, support my mom and be there for my mom because my dad had just passed. And so we, when we bought a house, we bought it with a, what they call like a princess suite or something. So it's got a bedroom attached to a bathroom attached to a closet. So like, it's almost this fully functioning space, um, and so we had this, this guest room, and so my niece and nephew sold their condo, and they're like, we don't know you know, necessarily where we want to end up. And so they stayed with us for about, I don't know, two months, and it was great. Like, they've got a, their, their uh, oldest kid is about the same age as our youngest kid, so, like, they're, like, inseparable cousins. They play all the time, and uh, so we, we lived together for a couple months, and they're like, well, this is great. Like, we're really getting to know each other. We're really building this relationship. And they started building the house next door, and they kind of looked at that, and they're like, well, why don't we go check this out. And so they ended up putting an offer there. And, um, so, you know, like we, now we do dinner, uh, probably, probably four nights a week if we're not Mm -hmm. sick, you know, if we're all healthy and everything. Mm -hmm. And if we do get sick, somebody goes down, like we've got a, you get a squad of (laughs) families of people here that we can, 
uh, work with. And then, uh, you know, uh, across the um, cul-de-sac, a couple houses down, we've got some really amazing neighbors that they don't have a whole lot of family in the area. Um, grandparents live in Kansas City or Florida, right? So it's pretty much just them. They're from the East Coast originally. But, you know, their kids are about the same age as our kids. Their kids started playing around the cul-de-sac, you know, and, and kids are kids, man. They see somebody their age. They want, they want to engage. They want to uh, play. And, and uh, so over the past, like, six years, we've developed a really good uh, relationship with them. Like, we, it, it's, it's funny, you know, we, we swap power tools. Like, if I don't have a tool, I'm like, hey, man, can I borrow this? He's like, sure. Like, hey, can I borrow Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they go on trips like Kansas City or visit their family or whatever. Like, hey, we got a, I got a package coming in, man. Could you grab that? Absolutely, man. We got you. And uh, and we're getting to know it. We got neighbors right across the street from us. And, um, again, the kids come out and they play. Like, the cul-de-sac is nice because there's not a lot of traffic through there. So it's this big concrete area. Kids can ride their bikes, ride their scooters, you know. And uh, so kids come out and play. We get our lawn chairs out. You know, we might have have a coffee or have a, another adult beverage, depending on the time of day, and just just chilling, man, just hanging out. And it's, um, I think it's in that that reliability of experience, just knowing that that person's there, knowing that they're going to be reliable. And then when stuff happens, you know, um, we talk about it. You know, like I I have some tumultuous stuff that happens at work. I'm like, hey guys, like, can I just share this and I just need to just need to share this experience with somebody, and, and like I've talked to my wife, till I'm blue in the face. Can I? Yeah, man, you can talk. Like we understand, we don't have any solutions for each other. Like they can't make it better, but they can be there with me, you know, and I can be there with them when, when stuff goes down. And I think, um, again, it goes back to you know being together, making those memories, you know. Um, and uh, but yeah, that's so. I think that's what ministry looks like in our in our immediate space is just getting to know our neighbors. You know, we had a had a conflict between. A couple of neighbors that, I mean, to be honest, was ridiculous, but, you know, ridiculousness happens in neighborhoods, right? So, um, but trying to help our neighbors navigate that, like, without gossip, without taking a kind of negative turn, but, like, how do we, how do we, and, like, both neighbors, I didn't really know. Um, we were there, like, we've seen each other, um, and anyway, I, I, we got drug into it. So, but trying to be a neutral party there and just help people think through like, Hey, I know you're upset, but let's look at the facts of what happened and let's, how do we go forward with this? And, um, so I think that's part of being a good neighbor, dude, being a peacemaker and, and being sure that we, you know, um, take care of the people around us and stuff. So what I wonder is like, um, how that worked out? Because I, sometimes when I think of getting involved in someone else's squabble there, I think there's a particular proverb about, you know, grabbing a dog, by uh, both ears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't let go. Yeah. Um, uh, well, it, I'll, I'll tell you, it, it hasn't resolved itself yet, but it's better. Okay. Um, and basically what I told the one neighbor who was looking for allies, um, and she was like, I just need somebody to believe me. And I was like, well, I believe that you believe what you believe, um, but I'm not getting into this. Like, I am not crawling in the middle of this. Like, I care about you and I care about them. And, you know, if you if you have enough evidence, call the police. That's why they're there. Mm-hmm. And knowing in the back of my mind, the police are going to come and tell her, you have no evidence. Like, there's nothing to it. And again, I don't want to, you know, get into the, the details of it. But um, I, I was able, as a, as a third party, at least I was able to say, hey, here's a way that we can operate this conflict. And here are our parameters that we can put in place. And here are some things we're not going to do. You know, like we're not going to come out of our house and yell and scream at each other. We're not going to come out of our house and yell and scream at our kids. Like Mm -hmm. that's not going to happen. 
uh, because then I am going to get involved and it's, it's not going to be something that anybody wants. So, but we can deal with this as, as grownups, you know, in a sensible fashion and, and then this, and kind of just kind of help find that vein, which to be honest with you, isn't that different than what I do with conflict management with fourth graders. I mean, it's kind of the same process. How do we, uh, how do we engage in moments when we disagree amicably and respectfully where we don't have to agree with each other but we have to respect each other and that's what I tell fourth graders and that's what I tell grown-ups too <laughs> yeah you know speaking of you and your uh, neighbors and everything I've been listening to Practicing the Way a podcast mm-hmm. with uh, John Mark Comer are you okay. familiar with I him? am not no it's worth checking out um, so he's really into like spiritual formation mm-hmm. um, spiritual disciplines one would be community, you know, yeah. living in community and so forth. So it's an interest I have. Um, whereas you're an extrovert, I'm an introvert. Yeah. So I've been trying to host dinners here, um, but it uh, it just seems like uh, it takes a lot out of me, you know, does, just, yeah. to, you know, and I think part of it's just kind of learning how to relax into it more and uh, not trying to make everything perfect and so mm-hmm. forth. And then, um, anyway, but um, it's something I definitely have an interest in because um, I think as humans, you know, we're just um, made for connection mm-hmm. and that's going to make a more fulfilling life. So even though I'm more of an introvert and I um, would incline more toward just kind of withdrawing, mm-hmm. you know, I'm <clears throat> pushing toward community and so forth. But... Um, you know, speaking of that, let me ask about church and things a little bit. So you planted a church in mm-hmm. Beeville, and it's still going. Is it? What kind of a building does it meet in? Uh, it's a it's a storefront. Okay. Um, there's a there's a group called uh, Oasis Ministries, um, and their their sole, sole mission is to connect with refugees and get them basically the essentials, man. Like get them uh, pots and pans for cooking, get them a mattress to sleep on. Mm-hmm. Um, they they don't really do like placement and finding homes like they can do some of that. Uh, most of that actually, for for refugees coming from another country, that's actually driven by the federal government. They have some support programs, um, but you know they'll give you like an apartment, right? And uh, you, so you got a family of eight coming into a, a single bedroom, maybe two bedroom apartment, and there may be a table, and that's it. And so like all of the furnishings for life and like. A lot of refugees, you know, refugees coming from Syria, that's a very different climate than coming to St. Louis, Missouri in the middle of November, December, January. And so they need clothes, they need jackets, they need pants, they need socks, they need boots. And um, and so Oasis uh, works to provide those needs. And, and they've formed a partnership with Church of Bevo where they have this great meeting space that Oasis uses, um, you know, original wooden floors from when it used to be whatever retail shop it was back in the 60s. And, um, and Bevo was like, well, hey, we need a place to meet on Sundays. Why don't we come check this out? So mm-hmm. they've since retrofitted that meeting space into a, a worship space. And so that's what they use on Sunday mornings. And uh, got a little foyer area outside to kind of meet and greet and stuff. So Church of Bevo uses it on Sundays. And then Oasis uses it basically Monday through Saturday. So that's, that's, the, that's the kind of building they have. Mm-hmm. you have any thoughts about church, for example, um, you know, when it comes to just hearing really good uh, teaching, mm-hmm. um, even even um, more or preaching, or even more than that, maybe 
something from a scholarly perspective, mm-hmm. biblical studies and so forth. You know, we all have access to that mm-hmm. on our phones and so forth. And I've thought when it comes to like meeting together face to face, we need to make um, the most of that opportunity, which is probably not just listening to someone lecture, mm-hmm. since that's something we can actually do on our own if we want mm-hmm. to. Um, so it's so I kind of value or I'm interested in more interaction among um, gatherings, you know, for the sake of gathering because we're Christian and mm-hmm. we're wanting to build one another up in Christ and mm-hmm. help one another. Um, anything that you've experienced or um, or have an interest in when it comes, or, you know, to Christian uh, Christians gathering and how what that should look like or just what most profitable way to gather for church would be man yeah i mean uh i mean books have been written on that right like ecclesiology and um as as far as my experience i'll take it back to just some observations about relationship and communication so you know the covid pandemic one thing that i think we all learned really viscerally is that there is you know, you can communicate information um, through a virtual medium really, really well. Like, you know, we can pick up a phone and, and we can communicate information. We can have a level of relational contact and or like, you know, we, we all use Zoom or like Google Meet or whatever for a while. Um, and you, you could have a meeting, right? You could, you could get information across. You could have a discussion. And, and thank God for that technology that really, I think, helped us stay healthier and safer for a time. But... Um, what you lose is this this uh, paraverbal, paraphysical communication where it's you know little little ticks of the body, little movements, little um, little nonverbal communication things that you, you can't get when you're not in person. Um, and I've, I've even read that you know each human being has a, has our own unique electromagnetic field that's it's very faint. You know, but every time our heart beats um, and our muscles contract, there's there's an electrical impulse there. And it's just amazing how God has, has made our bodies. But when we are with another person physically, like in person, our speech patterns can begin to reflect each other. We can pick up similar vocabulary and without even thinking about it. But like if you're really listening to somebody, you can begin to imitate their um, speech patterns and their um, cadence, like how, how fast, how slow they speak. Um, like I remember I used to work with, uh, the Amish for a summer and when I would really, when I was working with them, I would come home and my wife would be like, you're speaking Amish again. What What are you talking about? I, I can't even call up the accent now by memory, but listening to them, I would, I would just fall into this pattern of reflecting their speech and, and we would sound like each other by the end of a, you know, a 10 hour day yelling at each other about this, this construction project we're on. So I think when it comes to meeting together as a church, um, all of those little things build up into a bigger thing. They build up into this bigger relationship. And I think it really speaks to um, this level of trust that we have with each other um, and being able to notice notice each other and see each other. So how we do that, as far as the nuance and the detail and the, you know, I, I forget the word you use, like how do we optimize that? How do we do that the best way? I think is a really complicated uh, it's a simple question, but I think it has to be a really complicated answer depending on the location and the culture where we find ourselves or um, the culture that we're engaging with or, um, you know, what we 
what we want to prioritize and value in that moment. So, I mean, I've done, I've done church, um, sitting on people's couches, you know, I, I, I was, I got to visit a Nepalese church, um, and if you if you never had the experience to sit through a church service that's not in your native language, it's a fantastic experience because you'll hear words like hallelujah and amen, and like those are ancient Hebrew words, right? And they're the same in Nepalese and they're the same in Afghani and they're, they're the same in English. And so like I listened to this Nepalese sermon and he said hallelujah amen. I was like I know that. The rest of the sermon I have no idea what he said. You know we had a translator who was translating for us, so it was delayed, but. Um, you know, I've, I've done church like on people's couches. I've done churches in, in huge, beautiful cathedrals. I've done church um, in your standard, like non-denominational or Southern Baptist kind of auditorium that's this really weirdly shaped box and has all these symbols and banners and stuff hanging. And I think the physical space needs to be a reflection of what we value as a community, and just need to make some intentional choices about how we do that. But ultimately, I don't think it really matters as long as you have a trusting relationship with the people there. Like I really feel like as, as churches focusing our ministry on those interpersonal relationships and building those. Um, because I mean, when we first started church at Bevo, man, we, we were literally in a rectangle box, the worst acoustics you could imagine, like hardwood floors, ceilings, like metal folding chairs. Like it was as far as like, you know, the, the business model of a church, we did everything wrong, <laughs> you know, and that's not a slam on the, the elders and the, the pastors and stuff who were leading that, but that's just where we were at. But it was one of the most amazing worship experiences because we were in it together, man, and we were a family and we were here and we were doing this. Um, so I think, you know, meeting together as a church is, is key. And like you said, like, um, community in small groups is huge. It's a big thing. I think meeting together in a large group, like there's something about singing with each other live in person. Um, like God calls us to worship in song, I think not because he needs it, but because we need it. Like there's, there's a, uh, like even breaking it down to a chemical like level in the brain, right? Like it, it resets the chemicals in our brain and it's releasing those feel good, you know, uh, dopamine and it's a, it's a stress reliever. Like just yelling at the top of your lungs is a stress reliever. Like if you go out in a field and scream, you feel better about things. You go and sit in a, a public worship setting and you and you you sing along and you're belting it out and you don't care if you sound good or sound bad because you're all singing together. It's a good thing, man. And I think God has, has that wired into our physiology, but he also has it wired into our spirit that we um, experience that together and grow together. And it's, um, you know, I, I would say that meeting together with your local church is a lot like uh, eating a meal. You know, like it may not be the most exciting thing week in, week out, but if you go a couple of weeks without eating that meal, you're going to notice it and it's it's going to be detrimental to your life. And I think if you go without meeting in person, um, you're going to notice it and there's going to be, there's going to be a, uh, a lack and a detriment to your spiritual vitality. Meals might make a pretty good format for like, um, church community, um, at, um, I've been meeting with a group and they're going through a book called The Trellis and the Vine. Mm -hmm. And basically... It's a good book, man. Okay. Yeah. The, so, the tr you know, the trellis would be like the format or mm -hmm. something and then the vine would be the actual life and interaction. Mm -hmm. Well, a meal provide, as a trellis provides like an opportunity <clears throat> to serve one another, an opportunity to talk, um, an opportunity to um, take the Lord's Supper together, mm -hmm. perhaps. 
um, and it seems like it has roots that go all the way back. Um, but, um, but, okay, so um, I've been talking with someone lately about the atonement, and mm-hmm. they, um, they're kind of pushing back against the idea of um, a wrathful God who needs to be appeased hmm. by, um, with blood, mm-hmm. and rather than f- freely receiving everyone, but you know, requiring blood to satisfy his wrath and mm-hmm. so forth. And um, I um, seems like there there could be um, well, there does seem like there's different um, ways the atonement, Jesus's death, is looked at. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, um, a ransom type of thing, which mm-hmm. is maybe just a little bit different than mm-hmm. um, sacrifice mm-hmm. for appeasement and so forth. And then, um, you know, it's looked at um, as um, an example to, you know, something to emulate and right, so forth. Right. But um, do you have any thoughts about just what's going on with um, Jesus and his death and just what does it mean to you and um, anything along those lines? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think any time that we think about what, what God has done, uh, to, if if we try to simplify it down to simple answers, I think it becomes really, really difficult. Um, not to say that there aren't simple answers, because I think there are, and you can look at um, you know some of the statements of faith, some of the catechisms, and and there are some brothers uh, and sisters that have, have really worked really hard to be concise with their language, like the Westminster Catechism of Faith is a Famous one. I know a lot of guys I listen to to hold by the the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. You know, and to be honest with you, I haven't studied those enough to to really to know. Um, but I know if you ask me something something simple like, um, how would you describe your relationship with your kids? Simple question, right? I live it every day. It's going to take me a lot of words to really, if I really wanted to flesh it all out, it's going to take a lot. Um, and so I think, you know, we ask about what has God done in his atonement. Um, we have to be humble enough as human beings to understand that there's a lot there that we may not even understand. That there may be a lot there that we can't grasp. So all we can grasp is what God has said, right? And so as we look to his word, we do see that God has required a sacrifice. But that's not essential to who God is. Like we read in Hebrews that that's a shadow of things, right? So God has given us images and things that we can understand to try to describe to us what he's doing you know so like when i if i have to discipline my six-year-old like i'm not going to get into psychology i'm not going to get into um scriptural like basis like i might tell my kid like hey god tells me i'm the authority over you so we're going to do this thing and and you're not going to do this thing and and that's how we're going to go but I'm going to have to explain it to her in a way that she can understand. Like, I'm not going to give her the full story because she can't do that. And I think, in, you know, I remember Calvin had said that God's uh, God's word is like baby speak to us. He's trying to come down to our level and, and tell it to us in a way we can get it. Um, and then I think sometimes as theologians, we become enamored almost with our own ability to think. And we feel like we really figure it out. And I just think we have to be humble enough to say... Hey, here's what I got, and this is what God has said, and here's how I see it. But I could be wrong, or I could be missing quite a bit. 
Um, but I think as far as, you know, like a wrathful God, um, what I would say to your friend about a wrathful God is as somebody who has gone through evil, um, like I've, I've, I've looked evil in the face. I've seen it. Um, I had an uncle uh, who <clears throat> was not a good human being and abused my dad and abused me and abused his kids. Um, and that's the only funeral I've ever preached where I talked explicitly about the doctrine of hell. Um, and I was happy for it. I was happy that we have a vengeful God because if we didn't, like this man did not get any, in his life, he did not get any uh, consequences for the evil that he put on all the people he was supposed to protect. And knowing that we serve a God who is going to bring that to justice allowed me to rest. It allowed me to say, I don't have to pursue anything I can have a peaceful relationship with all my cousins that were under this guy and understand they're going through trauma like their lives are a train wreck because of this man. But I know he's going to answer for that at some point before a holy God. Um, and we think about, you know, the, the problem of evil in a world and we see evil. Um, and in the abstract, I think, um, you know, the... There's a theology called universalism that would kind of wipe all that away and God would just accept us all and we're all good people at heart. And that works until you see somebody who's not, until you see somebody who really is intentionally bringing harm to others. And then you think, wow, we need justice in some form. And so for God to say, I am going to be the arbiter of justice, I'm going to be the line, nothing gets past me. And then we think, well, <laughs> we're all evil on some level, like we're all doing bad things, you know, um, even those of us who have been redeemed, who are identity, like we're doing our best to be holy, we're doing our best to be righteous, we're still making mistakes. And so for God to say, I've, I've paid for those mistakes, um, I think is the only way that it makes sense to me that we can have a holy God who brings broken people to himself is that he reckons with that sin somehow and, and to do it through the blood of Christ um, is how he's chosen to do it. Now, I think, you know, we're several thousand years later. We live a very different life than um, what our brothers and sisters did, uh, you know, in the time of Moses, in the time of, of uh, Elijah, and, and, you know, the siege of Jerusalem and all that, like, and even the, the days when Jesus walked in Rome. Like, we live in a very different time. Like, public execution was the norm, you know, when Jesus was crucified. And we would just, I mean, we would just be shocked as a society to see that anymore. Thankfully, I mean, that, that's, a, that's not a critique on current society. That's a praise God that we're here. Um, but I think when we talk about these uh, ancient ways of, of communicating very real and very still true realities, um, they seem out of touch with our daily life and um, doesn't make them any less true and doesn't mean that the way that God has explained himself is wrong. It just means that I think we, we can feel easily out of step with that because, like, how does that fit into our world now? Um, so I, I think, yeah, the atonement is, uh, you mentioned, you know, ransoming us to himself and paying for our sin. And I, I think it is a, um, I heard somebody compared it to like a diamond, like it's a multifaceted diamond. In this one event, God was doing so much. And I think I would sum it up as saying, God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was making it possible that we can have an open and free relationship with our creator that we've wronged. Um, in such a way that we are fully accepted by him and fully gifted by him to go and do 
what he's called us to do in the world. So I think the atonement is that door that we can walk through um, to be able to begin that relationship. I think that's how I would phrase it. I apologize for the really long answer there. No, that's a good answer. I appreciate it. It seems really good. Um, you know, I'm just curious, how, how did things work out with your parents? Um, are, are you referred to reconciliation. So are, are things going well? Are they, um, you know, cr- Christians um, and so forth? And- Man, my dad was a Christian from the time that he was about 12 years old. So okay. he, he actually was saved. Uh, the story he told me, so his... Uh, both my parents were adopted, so I'll start there. Both my parents were adopted, so when it comes to my side of the family tree, um, I've got you know my parents, and then the rest is pretty much guesswork. Like I've got my grandmother, I, I know who gave birth to my mom and who gave birth to my dad, but as far as who their dads were, on both sides, I really don't know. It's guesswork. So, um, uh, so yeah. So they, my dad was a believer when he was like twelve. He. His mom and dad passed away. His dad, um, his dad was in and out of prison for most of his young life uh, because they couldn't afford anything else. So when when my my grandfather, well, the guy who said he was my grandfather, uh, was in prison, um, they would get food stamps and they would get uh, governmental support for the mom and the three kids. Uh, I guess five kids at some point. Um, and then, you know, dad would come back and they wouldn't have that support anymore. And then he would just go steal something or do something stupid and get put back in jail for a while. And and we get that support. And uh, so anyway, my my dad's mom passed when he was like six. And then his dad passed when he was like nine. And so then it was this older brother that I mentioned that really wasn't a good guy um, who took all the kids and they moved from way down in the country um, but up into the city and they lived in a boy's home for a couple of years and when my dad was in the boy's home uh, he just happened to walk by an African American church and was like ooh I like that singing I'm going to come in and sit down and so um, you know this little white boy from the country comes and sits in this African American uh, church and uh, probably like a church of God in Christ or something but super charismatic super. and my dad had this super boisterous person like I'm an extrovert he was an extrovert on 10 man he would talk to anybody and everybody and uh, but that's how he got saved. Was he heard he heard this guy preaching the gospel, and he came back to that church. And it, I forget. I think he was like going to the laundromat or something. I don't know. Um, but he was doing some kind of errand for the family. Happened to walk by the church. So he went to this church, you know, for a time, for about a year, and met the Lord. And then um, his his whole story was wrestling with you know his decisions and his choices, and knowing that God was there and God was God just kept bringing him back. Um, and again, you know, my dad learned a lot like I did. We, we were, you know, when God, uh, God tells the story of, uh, in Genesis, when he uh, wrestles with Jacob, right? And Jacob's just not getting it, man. He's just not getting it. And so God comes down in human form and literally wrestles with Jacob. And Jacob just grabs him and won't let go and won't let go. And God dislocates his hip. And he's like, now what? <laughs> now you know who I am. And you're going to walk with a limp the rest of your life. Um, and so for my dad and for me, I feel like God has dislocated us in various areas to remind us that he's the one in charge and we're not. Um, but so, yeah, my, my mom and dad were believers as long as I can remember. But how that worked out in their lives was really messy and complicated. Um, so when, you know, when things were really rough between them, um, you know, my mom would kind of try to start her own life and do her own thing with me. And uh, so we went to different churches and... Um, 
we went to, uh, she had a really close friend that I grew, I grew up with her daughter, uh, from like the time of like, I don't know, like five to like maybe 10 or 11 or so. So we spent most of our formative childhood years together and we would go to this Pentecostal church together and some point toward the end of that period was when I actually got saved and started reading the word. And, uh, I remember having a conversation with the pastor and I was getting ready to get baptized and we were talking about tongues and reached a point where, you know, he was giving me some, uh, some theological perspective from his side. And I was just like, but I don't see that in the Bible. And I like, I wasn't trying to be contentious. I was like a 10 year old kid just starting to say like, I'm reading the passage you're reading and I'm not seeing what you're seeing. Like, I, I just don't see how this works. Um, but yeah, so to, to come back to your your uh, your question, like I, my parents, we reconciled. Like when I when I first got married was when I saw how kind of messed up it really was. So my wife walking into the situation, you know, we got married out of high school, went to college together, and uh, just trying to figure out how to be adults together, kind of away from our families, and we we each brought our own kind of traumas and our own kind of messed upness, you know, into the marriage, like we all do. But when it's a different kind of messed upness, you can look at it and be like, whoa, that's messed up. When it's your own kind of messed upness, it's just kind of like, does a fish really know that it's wet? Not really. You know, you're living in this messed up, unhealthy environment, and that's just how you do. You know, you don't think about it. But she was able to kind of uh, be a mirror and hold up some stuff and like, hey, Will, like, we made a decision as a married couple, and then your parents came up to visit us, and your dad said a passing comment, and then you completely changed what we decided. Does that make sense to you? And I was like, yeah, no, no, it doesn't. So um, right after we, uh, so we got married, and we kind of were talking with my mom and dad through some relationship stuff, and then when we came back to the, the St. Louis area, um, at that point I was, I was pretty bent. I was going to be a church planner. Like I was going to do the whole like fundraising thing. And, and that was about the time, I don't know if you know of uh, the X 29 group, but that was mm-hmm. about the time that yeah. they were, they were about three or four years old at that point. So this, this idea of being, uh, you know, a church planner that's going to grab the world by the horns and just man, go for it and, and believe God for it and, and go do amazing things and be a missionary. And you know, like it was this really attractive idea. Right. But practically what that meant was I came home from college with a four year degree and uh, a lot of really big ideas, but I also had a wife, uh, and we were about ready to have a baby, and I had no house, and we had one car, and we needed money, man. So, <laughs> um, so I found a found a job, and um, we moved out of my parents' house, and that's when I really, you know, when I held my first firstborn child in my arms, I had to ask myself, like, is this kid going to live through the same experience that I lived through? And my answer was emphatically, absolutely not. And so I had a reckoning with my dad, and I, I basically told him, and again, I'm not a subtle person, so I don't recommend that people do this, and this is not a endorsement of any kind, but basically told my dad, like, hey, man, it's the bottle or it's me, and if you're going to see this baby that you want to see, you're going to have to put the bottle down and walk away, or you're not going to be a part of this baby's life. No ifs, ands, or buts. And so we went through about three years that were really, really difficult. Um, and me and my dad did not have a civil conversation for within that three-year period. But within that three-year period, my dad also um, started taking some anger management classes and started kind of diving into his own background and trauma. And uh, it, it started slow. Like you mentioned a meal. Like my mom and dad invited me over for dinner. Like, hey, could you bring the, the wife and the kid? And I was like, no, I'll come eat with you. And we had a really awkward, <laughs> really awkward dinner together. 
Um, and then I went and they had to get some yard work done. And so I went and did some yard work for them. And that's kind of how we started to repair that relationship was just being around each other, learning to trust each other again, me watching my dad like a hawk, like, when's he going to pick up the beer? When, when's it going to happen? You know, cause this has been my whole childhood. Right. And, uh, and he didn't, and he started talking to me about spiritual stuff and he started getting plugged into a church and having men around him that he could have real conversations with. And I, I don't exactly know what it was for him, but at some point, um, you know, he found peace with God and he, he found that he had spent his whole life running from his past and running from all this trauma that he had gone through. And when he felt, I guess, secure enough in the love of God to be able to look back at that in the face and say, hey, yeah, this happened. And that was really messed up. And I try to do better for my kid, but, but here's some areas where I, I need to learn from as well. And hopefully my kid's going to learn from this. When he was able to do all of that, we were able to sit down and, you know, it wasn't perfect. We would still, still argue. And, um, but we were able to talk about that. I remember I had a, had a rough day. I was a middle school teacher at the time. I had a rough day, man. And I was coming into school the next day and I just called my dad and, uh, was like, dude, I don't know if I can do this. Like, this sucks. And he was like, you got this, son. If they can throw Jeremiah in a well and God can hold him, he's got you. And uh, that, was a, that was a really magical moment with my dad, you know, to, to have that time, <clears throat> excuse me, have that time, even over the phone, of him just kind of picking me up, you know, for that moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so... We had a good relationship there. At the end, he he knew his grandkids, loved his grandkids, man, loved his grandkids. He he was Pawpaw and got in all sorts of trouble with the grandkids, like like Pawpaws do, you know. Uh, I remember there was one time that um, our our kiddo at the time uh, was really good friends with a, with another kid that uh, my mom and dad they just kind of collected people too as they went through their life, and that was kind of how the gospel poured itself out was. Um, you know, I had a, a group of friends in high school, and we had a, a prayer meeting at my parents' house, and uh, it, it grew from like a group of eight kids. It, it was a group of 40-some-odd kids. I don't even know how my mom fed all these kids, but she did somehow. You know, she made it work. And then I left and went to college, and I thought, okay, this group's going to die down. You know, I'm kind of proud of myself, like, oh, I'm in the middle of this group. Yeah, I wasn't. I, I really had very little to do with it. The group continued for another four or five years. And uh, kids that I didn't even know were hanging out at my parents' house, you know, chilling with Phil and Vicky. And um, so, yeah. So they uh, anyway, they had, they had one of these families that they had kind of collected and bonded with, and they had a little girl who was really good friends with my uh, daughter at the time. And they were hanging out with Papa. I don't even know what happened, man. All I know is I got a picture that my dad texted me, and both kids were covered head to toe in mud, and it was like. It was like November. It was like 45 degrees outside. Like, what are these kids doing to get caught? I don't understand what they were doing. All I know is that my dad's solution, Pawpaw's fix, was to get the hose. <laughs> and he said, come outside and hose them down. And then, you know, brought them inside and made them hot chocolate, and they were okay. Um, but, yeah, he was a great grandpa. Uh, my mom is still grandma to the girls. You know, she's figuring out her life. And, and, and now he, he passed in 2016. And... Uh, we had a good, you know, celebration of life for him. And, and, you know, you hear, like you see in the movies where you have that, like that bedside experience where like he confers his final words to his son. And I was able to have that. That was good. Um, so yeah, so 
relationship with my mom is I still call her, you know, at least a couple times a week we check in. Um, she's moved about an hour and a half away from us to kind of get a new start. You know, she's, she's, I think now going through the process of, uh, evaluating who she is and, and what it's like to be a single lady, you know, at her age and, and trying to figure out who she, I mean, she was married to this guy for 30 some odd years and I can't imagine, uh, you know, the grief that she went through and, and how she's processing it, but she's processing it. So we're actually, when we wrap up this podcast, uh, we're driving out there to have Thanksgiving dinner with them because we were going to do Thanksgiving last week and my kid was sick. So uh, we're still doing big family stuff with them. And, you know, what I, what I, we say frequently with my mom at least, and what I tell her is like, you know, she, her phrasing is, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, it happened and I can't change it. And, I, I kind of disagree with her. I'm like, well, there are some things that happened that were bad. We can say that. There are some things that happened that were good. We can say that. Um, but God used all of those uh, experiences to mold us into who we are and, and teach us and, and shape us into who we are today. And so here we are on this path together, um, and uh, we're still together, you know, still still as a family as much as we can be. So I think that's a that's a good testament of, of God's grace there. Yeah. Well... I think we should wrap up. Um, it's been good. I had a list of questions here, and I uh, for you, and I never got to them. I just <laughs> sorry about that. That's okay. Um, it was it's better this way, just to kind of be more interactive and not you know rather than pre-planned questions. But anyway, thanks, Will. I really appreciate the conversation with you. I think you've been a really good guest, so I appreciate that. Well, thanks, Will. I appreciate the opportunity, and it's good uh, getting to know you a little bit. Mm-hmm.